Well, it's just not the same without you. (laughs) But it is a wonderful truth, isn't it, that our soul can find rest in God alone, that we can trust in him completely, and that with every day we can pour out our soul, and he will prove his mercy. It's also the first Sunday of the month, which is normally when we would take the Lord's Supper together, another practice that I am missing today. It is an ordinance that is given to the church, and so it is not something we are going to virtually do in each home, but whenever it is that we come back together, we will celebrate together. It is good to be around the Lord's table together. If you would, take your Bible and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel 13. Next week is Resurrection Sunday. It is Easter, and uh, we will take a one-week break from our study in 1 Samuel to consider the centrality of the resurrection to the Christian faith. And so I hope that you will invite your friends to join in with this live stream uh, and to uh, hear about that which is most central to our faith That event, that, without it, there is no Christianity. We may as well cut off the live stream, bulldoze the building, and go home and just get on with our lives. That is how important the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is. And next week we will consider that. But today we are in 1 Samuel chapters 13 through 15. Um, which is a long way to go. We won't read the whole thing in succession. We'll read bits as we go along. Um, But that is where we are today. Uh, I just finished reading. Well, I've started many times and gotten various links into the book called uh, Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, uh, just for one reason or another. Had never finished that last, uh, about the last third of it, and I reread it recently. And it's an allegory, it's an allegory of the Christian life. And a man named Christian is traveling from the city of destruction to the celestial city, to heaven. And along the way, he encounters a man named Talkative. Talkative is always up for a good conversation about spiritual things. He can teach your Sunday school class. He can offer you a critique, biblical critique of modern human society. He is concerned for the truth, both in the church and in the world. But Christian knows talkative, and he says this of him, regardless of his fine tongue, he's really a sorry fellow, meaning his words don't actually match his life. Talkative gives the appearance of faith through his words. He seems like the genuine article, but he's not. And friends, I would say to you this morning, the spirit of talkative is alive and well today. The spirit that can talk the talk, as it were, but does not walk the walk that puts on the appearance of faith without actually having genuine faith. The spirit that looks one way at church when we can actually gather together at church, 
but looks a completely different way at home. The spirit of talkative is everywhere. And in fact, it's in the text that we're studying today, in these three chapters in 1 Samuel that give us uh, a kind of overarching record of uh, Saul's reign. Now, he will continue to reign after chapter 15, and we'll see his interaction with David. But here, the spotlight is securely on King Saul and who he is. Now, just to remind you of where we've been, Samuel, the prophet, Samuel has anointed Saul to be Israel's first king. And then in Samuel's last recorded public address, he charges the nation of Israel in 1 Samuel 12, 20 to do this, to serve the Lord with all your heart. In other words, don't let the spirit of talkative run free. Don't settle for the appearance of faith, the appearance of serving the Lord, but serve Him with all your heart. And sadly, the newly anointed King Saul settles for the appearance of faith, and that is the tragedy that unfolds in these three chapters. If 1 Samuel 13 to 15 were set to music, it would be largely dominated by the minor key. It is that kind of tragedy. And through these three chapters, we learn that God rejects the mere appearance of faith, but He rewards authentic faith. I just want to read part of one verse before we pray, and it's 1 Samuel 15, the second half of verse 22. Samuel is speaking to Saul, and he says this, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we come to your word, we pray for your Spirit's help. I ask, Lord, that you would fill me with your Spirit, that I might speak with clarity, with courage, and with conviction the words that you have said, the truth that you have revealed in your word, and that all of us together would hear your word, that we would hear it attentively. I pray in homes where young children are around, Lord, that you would help those parents and help those children to focus and to not be distracted or to be a distraction, but rather that we would sit attentively and hear your word, and beyond hearing it, that we would obey, that we would heed it, because to obey is better than sacrifice. Help us to learn that lesson today in Jesus' name. Amen. God rejects the mere appearance of faith, but He rewards authentic faith. And so that provides actually the two headings under which we'll think about these three chapters. First, thinking about, and mostly because this is the majority of uh, the thrust of these chapters, is the appearance of faith. And we see that in the life of of Saul. Now, Saul's physical appearance has already been highlighted for us. Back in chapter 9, verse 2, we're told that he's tall and he's handsome 
And uh, beyond that, he's rich. He is the guy that you would choose to be the king. But in these chapters, what happens is, is that Saul seems very concerned to keep up appearances. That's true from the outset. Look at chapter 13, verses 1 to 4. Saul lived for a year and then became king, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. So Saul is establishing uh, a standing army for Israel. Let's keep going. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and that it also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. So, Jonathan goes out, takes initiative like a king actually should. Saul is not doing this. Jonathan goes out and he defeats a garrison of Philistines, this Philistine outpost. And then Saul takes the credit. Quite literally, he toots his own horn. He blows a trumpet throughout Israel and says, let everyone hear. Make sure all the headlines of the newspapers read correctly. Saul has defeated the Philistines, and that's why Israel is now a stench to the Philistines. And so uh, everyone is going to have to build a much larger army because the Philistines aren't going to take this sitting down. But the fact is, is that Saul is very interested in the appearance here. He wants to look like a good king. He wants to look like a heroic king. But looking like a good king is not actually the thrust of these three chapters. The the big problem is that Saul wants to look like a godly king. And we see this in a few different ways. First of all, Saul appears to seek the Lord. In these chapters, we see that Saul appears to seek the Lord. Now, after this victory by Jonathan, the Philistines put together a massive army of 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and more foot soldiers than you could actually count. And here's Saul with his 2,000, and, and these 2,000 are now joined with Saul at Gilgal, and they're waiting there because that's what the prophet Samuel had told him to do. So back in chapter 10, verse 8, Samuel says to Saul, "'Go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do.'" But as chapter 13 goes on, we won't read it all, but, but what happens is things begin to fall apart. Some of Saul's men are running and hiding in caves and in cisterns and anywhere they can find a hiding place. Some of Saul's men are going AWOL and crossing the Jordan River and going over to Gad and Gilead to to try to find safety. And beyond that, the rest of those who are left are shaking in their boots. And rightfully so, the Philistines have made sure that the Israelites don't even have enough weapons to try and fight. Look at chapter 13, verse 19. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel... 
For the Philistines said, Lest the Hebrews make themselves, make themselves swords or spears. So, they did, so the Philistines didn't want Israel to have blacksmiths in town, so they deport all of them so that they can't make weapons. In fact, if they wanted to have their uh, plowing utensils sharpened, they had to go to the Philistines and pay for it. And then we see in verse 22, So on the day of the battle there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan his son had them. So there are two weapons in all of Israel. One is in the hand of Saul... And one is in the hand of Jonathan. Now, here in chapter 13, remember Saul, Samuel has told Saul to wait for him. But you can see in verse 8, he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. So everybody's scared. People are running away. People are going AWOL. There's not enough weaponry to actually fight the Philistines. Everyone's afraid, and Samuel still hasn't shown up. So Saul's patience runs out, and he decides he's going to offer the sacrifices himself. Let's read verses 8 up to 11. Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? That question is convicting in and of itself. Now, normally, priests are the ones who would offer sacrifices, but it wasn't unheard of for a king to do this. David will do it later. Solomon will do it later. The problem here isn't so much that Saul is the one offering the offering, except that, that a king is offering a burnt offering, sorry. The problem is that Saul only appears to be seeking the Lord by offering up this burnt offering. If he was really interested in hearing from the Lord, in knowing what the Lord wanted, he already had instructions from the Lord through the mouth of Samuel to wait at Gilgal. He's supposed to wait for Samuel, and then Samuel was going to offer the offerings. But Saul is not interested in the counsel of God. He's interested in appearing to be interested in the counsel of God. And since Samuel hasn't come, he'll just do it himself. He actually thinks that the appearance of seeking the Lord by offering up these offerings is sufficient. You see, what's happened is that the pressure of the situation, the fear of the situation, has exposed Saul's heart. That it's not a heart after God. That it's a heart after the appearance of godliness. Begin again in verse 11. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God. 
with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. You see what's happened? Saul says, everybody's running away. The Philistines are on the horizon. You didn't show up. I had to do something. So I forced myself. I had no other choice but to disobey the counsel I was given. The pressure, the fear, was what was determining whether Saul would seek the Lord as he was supposed to. Friends, we live in a day of uncertainty. We live in a day when a tiny virus has created enormous fear and enormous pressure. What our lives and our jobs and our economy and our personal finances will look like on the other side of this is completely uncertain. But know this, the pressure of this moment will expose our hearts. It will show whether we serve God or whether we serve money. It will show whether we have our hearts after God or if it only appears that way. Now certainly, we ought to be thinking about how to provide for our families. Things that we had been doing and that were regular routines are largely gone, or they are diminished significantly. And we ought to be wise about these things. We ought to have proper godly concern, especially you uh, husbands and fathers. You ought to be concerned about providing for your family. But though riches come and riches go, don't set your heart upon them. The pressure of needing to continue providing for our families will expose our hearts. And Saul only appears to seek the Lord. It happens again, actually, in chapter 14. If you look at chapter 14, verse 24, the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Now Saul declares a fast for his army. This was not something that was required for the army. It wasn't required for, uh, to please God, to have the army fast. In fact, it's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it, to take away the food that's supposed to energize the soldiers who are going to fight. But Saul declares this fast, and fasting is good. Fasting is a discipline meant to intensify our prayer lives, that the physical hunger in our stomachs is meant to remind us to be hungering after God. But Saul isn't hungering after God. He's hungering after revenge. Did you hear what he said? Cursed be the man who eats until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies." That's what Saul wants. Saul is not looking to seek the Lord, which is what fasting is meant to do. Saul is seeking to focus his men on getting vengeance. Saul only appears to be seeking the Lord. 
The second thing that we see about this appearance of faith is that Saul appears to obey the Lord. Okay? Saul appears to seek the Lord through this offering in chapter 13, through this fast in chapter 14, and Saul appears to obey the Lord, and we see this in chapter 15. Let's read beginning in verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now friends... This is a hard thing to wrap our minds around, what God has told Saul that he should do. God orders the death of every Amalekite man, woman, child, and animal because they had been opposed to the Israelites when the Israelites were in the wilderness. And uh, that fight happens in Exodus chapter 17. And in Deuteronomy 25, when Saul is explaining what happened with the Amalekites, he basically says that they were evil and underhanded. They were picking off stragglers. They were waiting until the Israelites were faint and weary and then taking advantage of it. They just simply weren't fighting fair at all. And even though it's 300 years since then, the Amalekites haven't changed. Look at, chapter, look at verse 33 of chapter 15. Samuel is speaking to the king of the Amalekites, and he says, Your sword has made women childless. Amalek is still in the business of slaughtering. And God is sending Saul in judgment against the Amalekites. I mean, just imagine this, the, the idea of every person in a city laying dead, the silence of the streets as life is snuffed out, and the only sound is the footsteps of the Israelite soldiers as they leave. It is an eerie picture. It is horrid. But we also must remember, as we think about how awful that scene is, we must also remember what Ezekiel 33 tells us, which is that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. In fact, He wants the wicked to turn to Him and to live. But Amalek didn't, and God will punish their wickedness. In fact, God would be unjust if He did not punish the wicked. It is horrid. But horrifying punishment is what the Amalekites deserved. But friends, it's not just the Amalekites that deserve horrifying judgment and punishment. Every single one of us deserves it. Because of our sin, we deserve God's eternal horrifying Judgment. We tend to make some sins more awful than others, and relatively speaking, in human terms, that's understandable. But before a holy God, any offense is cosmic treason, no matter how small we think it is. 
and what we deserve in response is horrifying judgment. So as we read things like God telling Saul to wipe out everything that has breath in it in the city of Amalek, we ought to know that this is only a foretaste of the eternal judgment that awaits all of those who remain opposed to God, who will not hear Him say, turn to me and be saved, and then turn to Him. Every single one of us, because of our sin, deserves this kind of horrifying thing. It is a sobering thought, and one we ought not to dismiss. Some will explain away final judgment because it sounds too terrible. Some will question God's character because of it. But our God is holy and He is just. He cannot allow wickedness to go unpunished any more than any judge in our nation or in the world can allow law-breaking to go unpunished. Now back to our story. God has spoken. And in response, Saul gathers his troops and goes to Amalek, and it appears, according to verse 7, like he's obeyed. Look at verse 7. Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. If that were the end of the story, then Saul would have obeyed. But it's not the end of the story. Verse 8 goes on, "...and he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive." And devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. So Saul may have seen Agag as just being a you know, politi- political expediency or somehow advantageous to keep him alive and keeping all of these, you know, wealth is measured in livestock like this. So it really boosts the economy in Israel to keep the spoils. But it's only partial obedience. God said everything, not the things that you think are worthless. It's not in your court to decide what, what gets devoted to destruction and what gets saved. It's in the counsel of God. And so this is partial obedience, and partial obedience is complete disobedience. This is what parents seek to teach their children every day. I mean, imagine a mother telling, his, telling her child, I want you to clean your room by doing three things, putting your toys where they belong, putting away your clean clothes, and taking out the trash that's in there. If the toys are put away and the clean clothes are put away, but the trash is still full or in some cases overflowing, is it obedience? The answer is no. Partial obedience is not obedience. The appearance of obedience is not good enough. And so the text goes on, beginning in verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel... I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has, set, he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, 
Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people, spa- the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted <clears throat> to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, "Go go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Now, just glance back at verse 9, because the narrator tells the truth where Saul is lying. Look look what verse 9 says. Saul and the people spared Agag, the best, and the best of the sheep and of the oxen. It was not just the people running some sort of coup and going behind Saul's back. What we see here is, first of all, I mean, notice how it, it, it goes downward. I mean, Saul is on this decline. First of all, he comes out with this absolute statement of obedience in verse 13. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. His pride is out there. He appears to have obeyed. And Samuel exposes it. And then in verses 20 and 21, Samuel claims obedience, but with a caveat. He says, I basically obeyed. I mean, I went on the mission. I devoted everyone to destruction except Ahab. And the people, they're the ones who kept the animals. I mean, Saul is looking at Samuel, basically saying, I picked up my toys. I put away my clothes. The only thing I didn't do was take out the trash, and quite frankly, not everything in the trash can is mine, so I'm not sure why that's my responsibility. Blame shifting and justifying sin is a common response, not just in the Bible, but in the 21st century. I mean, imagine the husband who says, I'm not perfect, uh, but I am a good husband. Sure, I committed adultery, but I love my wife. I mean, in fact, she drove me to it by the way she's been acting. What else could I do? I had no other choice. Saul is doing the same kind of thing. Now, Samuel's been asking questions, as you heard along the way, and now he'll ask and answer one himself, beginning in verse 22. And Samuel said, Has not the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obey... Has the Lord 
as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. What Samuel wants Saul to know is what God wants us all to know. That there is no ritual that can substitute for obedience. There is no external expression of religiosity that is a substitute for genuine faith. Going for the motion, going through the motions is meaningless. The motions themselves, the sacrifices that are being made in the Bible, as we think about our day, things like attending uh, church on Sunday, uh, serving the Lord in one capacity or another, uh, giving, reading our Bibles, taking the Lord's Supper, being baptized. These are all good things, things that are meant to express our faith, but they are not substitutes for faith. To obey is better than sacrifice. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 1, God just basically says, why don't you just shut the whole sacrificial system down because I don't want to see it anymore. That's how much obedience is better than sacrifice. And Saul only appears to be obedient. The last thing Saul appears to be is repentant. Saul appears to repent. So at the end of this conversation, Saul seems to stop justifying his actions and listen, but listen carefully here. Beginning in verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Meaning, there won't be any change in this. There's no way to make it up, no way to get it back. Then Saul said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Now, there are some similarities to repentance in this, in this paragraph, but it's not actual repentance. In verse 24 and in verse 30, Saul says he's sinned, which is good, but he doesn't repent. He says why he sinned, because he feared the people, which can be helpful to know why we sin, but he doesn't repent. Saul asks for forgiveness. Please pardon my sin in verse 25. Again, good, but he doesn't repent. Saul wants to worship the Lord again, verse 25 and verse 30. Great, but he doesn't repent. 
Saul wants everything to be fixed. He's desperate for it. That's why he gra- reaches out and grabs Samuel's robe. But he doesn't repent. Saul wants his honor restored in verse 30. Now, restoration can come after repentance, but Saul just wants that. That's the first hint that this is not genuine repentance here. Plus the fact that he's explained, this is why I sinned. It's not my fault. I'm afraid of the people. It's just who I am. But the clearest evidence that Saul is not repenting is in verses 32 and 33. Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Can you imagine the smug look on his face? He's like, I'm off the hook here. Everybody else is dead, but I'm going to make it. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Now, that is a disgusting scene. But in part, it fulfills the promise of God, which was that the Amalekites would be blotted out. But in addition to that, it underlines the fact that Saul is not repenting. That his is only the appearance of repentance. Because if Saul were repentant, he would not have let Samuel do this. He would have snagged the sword out of his hand and do what he had been commanded to do in the first place, which was to devote Agag to destruction. You see, repentance is not merely a display of sadness because we've sinned. It's the reorientation of our minds and our hearts and our lives away from sin and toward God. Saul appears to seek the Lord. He appears to obey the Lord. He appears to repent. But friends, that's all it is. It's just an appearance. I mean, everyone around him might have looked on and said, man, this guy is really trying to to honor the Lord. What is Samuel's problem? Coming and tearing him down and judging him all the time. Because everything looks okay, but the fact of the matter is God sees right through it. There is no putting on and keeping up of appearances that fools God. 1 Samuel 16, 7, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And God exposes, God exposes Saul's rejection. You have, verse 23, you have rejected the word of, of, of the Lord. Isn't it interesting? Remember how all this got started, how the king came to be in the first place? The people reject God and say, we want a king for ourselves. And God gave them Saul, who at this point is the quintessential Israelite because he is rejecting God. He is not a man after God's own heart. He is not concerned to please the Lord. He fears people more than he fears God. He is concerned to be seen rather than to be genuine. And because of that, because of Saul's appearance of faith, that it's really a rejection of God, God rejects Saul. So, just a few verses, 
Chapter 13, verse 14. But now your kingdom shall not continue, God says. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Chapter 15, verse 23. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Chapter 15, verse 28. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours. Chapter 15, verses 34 and 35. And Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. God rejects the mere appearance of faith. That in and of itself leaves a dark cloud over these three chapters, but there is one spot where the clouds depart and light shines through, and that is in the authentic faith of Jonathan. Very briefly, I want to show this to you. Saul's son is introduced in these chapters because he stands in sharp contrast to Saul. In chapter 14, let's look at chapter 14, Saul, who wants to look, remember, he wants to look like a good king, uh, but he's actually on the sidelines when it comes to fighting. He's, uh, according to verse 2, he's in a pomegranate cave, or it could be that he's under a pomegranate tree. It's one of those two. But Jonathan, who is the one who acts like a true king, takes initiative and goes out to fight the Philistines. But he doesn't have his thousand men. It's just him and his armor bearer. And look what he says to his armor bearer when, in verse 6 about going. He says, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. That, friends, is a statement of faith. He says, Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, no one can stop him. Jonathan has absolute faith that God can save them, that God can win the victory. And to condition it, he says, it may be that the Lord will work for us. This too is a statement of faith. You see, we have faith wrong when we think that faith just names it and claims it. That faith is confident that God will do exactly what I want him to do. That is not faith. Faith is saying God can absolutely do anything that he wants to do, and if he wills to help me, nothing can stop him. Faith here submits to God's sovereign will. And Jonathan says to his armor bearer, guess what? There's going to be a sign. If they say, come up here and we'll teach you a lesson, well, that'll just be the sign that God's going to be for us. And actually, that's exactly what happens. Uh, and so... Um, in verse 12, the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. That's, that's uh, ancient speak for we're going to teach you a lesson. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And he acts and he fights. And verse 23 tells us the result the Lord saved Israel that day. I mean, they climb, up, they climb up this slippery crag, and they get up, and they start to kill Philistines. Twenty of them die. Panic breaks out in the camp. The Philistines start fighting each other because they're so confused. 
Then, from a distance, Saul and all the Israelites see, oh, things are going bad. They're starting to go down. Let's get in on that. But through the faith of Jonathan, God saves Israel. So the Lord saved Israel that day. It's quite an amazing thing that in the midst of all this darkness, this darkness of only the appearance of faith, the light that shines through is authentic faith. In fact, Jonathan's very presence, his kingly action, leading the people, trusting the Lord, all condemns Saul. Saul is keeping up appearances, and Jonathan is authentic. And Jonathan's authentic faith comes out in his actions. Authentic faith is not just a show. It's not just something on the outside. It actually is something that changes everything about what we do. Faith is not just words. James 2 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? The implied answer is no, not because works contribute to our salvation, but because saving faith is demonstrated by our works. Without works, we only have the appearance of faith. Without works, we're just living out the spirit of talkative from Pilgrim's Progress. Let me ask you, are you satisfied with the appearance of faith in your life? In Jesus' day, the Pharisees were satisfied with appearances. And so Jesus says this of them in Matthew 23, You are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Friends, being like the Pharisees doesn't mean that our faith is faulty. Being like the Pharisees in Jesus' mind means faith isn't present at all. It's just a show. It's a beautiful whitewashed tomb, but the reality is dead bones and stench. Jesus also said in Mark 2, those who, have, who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, theologically, we know that there are no well people. There are no righteous people. But there are those who believe themselves to be well, who have the appearance of wellness, of righteousness. But such people will never believe they have a real spiritual need. They'll believe they're not as bad as other people, so they won't believe that they need a Savior. And as a result, they won't have one. Only those who know they're sick, who know they're sinners, who know they can't cure themselves, can't atone for their own sin, only they will find in Jesus a Savior, the one who's paid the price for our sin, took our punishment that we deserve, the one who has enough mercy and compassion for all who come to Him, the one who will save all who repent, all who believe for all eternity. Don't be satisfied with the appearance of faith. Don't rest your eternal hope on you because that is no hope at all. Place authentic faith in Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin. Trust in Him. Set your hope on Him. Friend, if, yours, if you have been satisfied with the appearance of faith, I pray that God will make you dissatisfied with it. And that you will genuinely turn to the Lord and trust 
him. Because God rejects the mere appearance of faith. He rewards authentic faith. Which do you have? Our Father, we bow before you soberly thinking about the fact that you see through any appearance that we might put up, that we might keep up, that we might make others believe, that we might convince ourselves of, that you see through it all and you see our hearts. Father, we, we pray that you will give us grace to not be satisfied with the mere appearance of faith. But you will give us grace that we might have authentic faith. Faith that believes in your power, submits to your will, comes out in our actions. Faith that actually saves us. Lord, I pray for those who are gathered virtually, that we as Gray Road Baptist Church would be a people of authentic faith, that you would expose that which is only a veneer of faith, which is only a mirage, and that you would make it authentic. Our world needs Authentic Christians declaring the authentic gospel to give hope. You are not glorified by mere appearances. You are glorified by genuine faith. Give that to us. And now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Christ's name, amen.